let's open our time in a word of prayer first. Dear Heavenly Father, I would just thank you because you are a loving God. You are a sovereign God. Um, you are a merciful God. Uh, just thank you for the time that we have to gather together today that we could sing praises of worship. You know, we can worship your majesty, your love, your sovereignty, your power. We ask that your spirit be with us now as we look into your word and consider the topic of suffering. We pray that that, that you, through your Holy Spirit, comfort and encourage those that are here, but also those that are not here with us today, that, that the, 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 these individuals that may be going through trials, you know, um, difficulties, you know, uh, suffering, we ask that you comfort them and be with them, and also be with us today. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray, uh, amen. So, uh, Johnny Erickson Tada grew up in a Christian family. Uh, she, actually, so it's Johnny is a woman, okay? Her, her name is spelled J-O-N-I, um, but it's pronounced Johnny. So she learned from an early age, you know, how much God loved her. When she grew up, when she was in her teens, she kind of began to look for her own way of life. You know, she believed that she didn't really have time for God or God didn't have a place for her in her life. So she began to seek satisfaction and happiness through popularity, through dating relationships, and eventually through her athletic accomplishments. But unfortunately, that began to lead to kind of problems and turmoil in her life. She began to deal with what she was calling sins of emotion, anger, jealousy, resentment. And when she was... When she was 16, she actually attended uh, like a church camp. And she began to realize kind of the difficulty that she was facing in her life. And she prayed to God that God, you know, change her life, you know, do something in her life. About a year later, it was the summer of 1967, and she, do she dove headfirst off a platform into Chesapeake Bay. But what she didn't know was that the underwater sandbar had shifted. And so when she dove, her, hit, her head hit the sand, and she, in, she broke her neck, and she instantly became paralyzed from the shoulders down. When she was in the hospital recovering, she realized kind of her, her physical situation. She became despondent. She became even suicidal over her condition. But ironically... And because she was completely paralyzed from the shoulders down, she couldn't do anything, you know, for herself. She needed total care. She needed total assistance. And her despondency got to the point where she would beg, she would plead to her friends that would come visit. She would ask them to help her commit suicide. And her, her physical and her emotional suffering then began to lead to spiritual confusion and doubt. Johnny began to wonder, you know, has, had God turned his back on her? So she began to look for truth and meaning to her situation in other worldly philosophies. But unfortunately, that led to more dissatisfaction. A couple years after her accident, Johnny went to Rancho Los Amigos Hospital down in Los Angeles for additional rehab. And that, that at that time, Rancho Los Amigos was relatively new, and the kind of the rehab techniques were considered very advanced and kind of cutting age for that time. 
And so she was really hopeful that she was going to regain the use of her hands and her arms, maybe even to just a small degree. But after some time there, there was actually no improvement at all. And she became very cynical. She felt betrayed by God. And Johnny began to doubt the promise of Romans 8.28. Did God really work all things for good for those who loved him? And she began to wonder. So we're going to pause Johnny's story here for now, and we're going to come back to that. And, And Johnny's story highlights and it introduces several truths about suffering. The first is, you know, suffering comes in many different forms. Suffering can be physical, you know, as in the case of Johnny, but her physical suffering also led to emotional suffering. So sometimes suffering is emotional. It can be spiritual. It it can be people doubting or kind of wondering about the truth of the gospel message or the truth, you know, the, the security of their salvation. Suffering can be sometimes like financial. Sometimes it can be relational. You know, suffering like when, you know, maybe somebody's in a difficult relationship or, you know, a, a relationship with another person is causing suffering. Suffering can be triggered or unprovoked. You know, in the case of like a physical ailment, kind of a sickness. Or it can also come at the hands of, of man. You know, unfortunately, such as in the, the mass shootings that we've seen recently. And that, or that, that brings on suffering for those families. We can also see it in the form of natural disasters, you know, such as earthquakes or hurricanes. And that can bring about human suffering. So that's the first truth of suffering that I want to kind of introduce to kind of lay the context, lay the framework. Suffering comes in many different forms. And the second is that there are many, there are many time courses to suffering. Suffering can come on very suddenly or acutely, like in Johnny's case. Or it's something that can develop slowly over time. Suffering can be a single instance or a single event, you know, in time, such as like a, the tragic or unexpected passing of a loved one. Or it's something that can occur over an extended period of time. Again, like, you know, a physical ailment or, you know, a disease or illness. So there's many time courses to suffering. And then the third final truth that I want to kind of share with you, and it's not really found in Johnny's story, but we're going to touch on it in just a little bit, is that suffering is inevitable. Everyone is going to suffer at some point in their life. We will all experience it in our personal lives or maybe in the lives of someone around us. It's just unavoidable. Now, the world struggles with the topic and the nature of pain and suffering. Secular philosophies and and non-Christian worldviews cannot explain or they cannot address suffering as well as Christianity and biblical theology can. The world sees suffering or pain as an intrusion, an exception. You know, it's an anomaly, you know, to a life of peace and happiness. Suffering is something that should be avoided or that we should try to eliminate from our own personal lives or the, the life of the world. And that somehow humanity should be able to eliminate or conquer suffering through humanity's own power. That's the worldview. 
And when suffering does happen or a tragic event does occur, you know, the world and and non-Christians, and sometimes Christians too, they'll ask questions. They'll ask, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Or why them? Why did it happen to them? Or why me? Or how can God allow bad things to happen? So those are some questions that can arise in response to suffering. Now, fortunately, God has revealed his purpose and his plan for suffering through his word in scripture. Christian suffering and the theology of suffering are are prominent themes in 2 Corinthians. So if you would turn with me to the passage and over... We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. And these verses describe the three, what I put, what I describe as the three R's of suffering. These three R's of suffering encourage or they comfort the believers in times of turmoil, in in times of affliction, distress, or suffering. And those three R's are the reasons for suffering, the responses to suffering, and the results of suffering. Now, just as a quick kind of background, one of the purposes of of the book of 2 Corinthians was Paul was defending his apostolic ministry and, and the gospel message against rivals and opponents that had arrived in Corinth and were building kind of an influence in the Corinthian church. So it's not, a, it's not entirely clear, you know, the nature or the, the origin of these kind of rivals or kind of Paul's opponents. But what was clear is that they were trying to undermine Paul's ministry, Paul's authority. And what they were doing was they were criticizing Paul over a lot of different things. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul lays out a defense. And the first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians, Corinthians, Paul focuses on his ministry and his relationship with the Corinthian church as a defense of his apostleship. And so throughout the book, Paul describes the suffering that he's been through, the tribulation that he experienced during his ministry. So we're going to look at the first Oh, let, let me read, let's, um, let's look at verse 15 first. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul writes, For all things are for your sake, sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. So verse 15 introduces the reasons for suffering. And the first reason is that suffering has a purpose. It sounds kind of, you know, kind of circular, but let me elaborate a little bit more. Basically, what I mean is that there's a reason for suffering. Suffering is never senseless. Suffering is not pointless. It's not meaningless. There's always a purpose for suffering. In verse 15, Paul writes, he begins the verse with, for all things. And what Paul is referring to with the all things is he's referring to 
the suffering, all the suffering and all the tribulation that Paul, that he has endured in the course of his ministry. We can skip ahead. Well, I won't read the verses, but you can make note of this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul spends 11, a big section. It's actually about 10 or 11 verses, starting at verse 23. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Paul describes the physical suffering and the punishment that he's had to endure. That included lashings, stonings, beatings. He's had to endure hunger, thirst, cold, you know, and imprisonment. So going back to verse 15, he says all these things, all of the punishment, all the physical suffering that I've had to endure, he's done it for the sake of the Corinthian believers. There was a purpose for Paul's suffering. He suffered so that the Corinthian church would hear the gospel message and grow in it. And that's what he's referring to in verse 15. And we can expand. We can kind of take that one step. We can take one step back, and we can expand on that. And we can say that suffering has a purpose, and that there is a reason for suffering. And we can think, then we can actually then take a broader view, and we can actually then go to the doctrines of creation and the doctrines of the fall and Adam's original sin. These doctrines will tell us that suffering is just. Suffering is rightly deserved by humanity. Pain and suffering were not, you know, a part of God's original plan for creation and humanity. Adam's original sin led to imputed guilt and inherited guilt onto all mankind. You know, Adam's original sin led to corruption in the world, and it brought about suffering in the created order and also in humanity, too, as well. We look at Genesis 3, and we see all the a description of the suffering that, was, that God you know, proclaimed or decreed on the world because of the fall. We see spiritual alienation. We see tension in personal relationships, the physical pain of childbirth. We see disease and death. It's all as a result of Adam's original fall. So suffering was and is a form of God's judgment on sin. So suffering is purposeful in that it points to and it anticipates God's plan for redemption of all things. Now, there's a critical point that needs to be made that, that I have to make here and that cannot be, you know, overemphasized. This is a really important point. And that's the idea of the relationship between suffering and sin. Now, Timothy Keller writes that the doctrine of sin gives, quote, a nuanced understanding of suffering. Unquote. So the doctrine of the fall tells us that all people are sinners in the eyes of God. So because of that, we can reject the idea that people who are suffering or people who suffer more are somehow more sinful than those who suffer less or who are not going through suffering. And also, we can never say that every single instance or every particular instance of suffering, of pain, 
of turmoil is caused by a specific sin. We cannot say that. And that was the error. That was the mistake that Job's friends were making. They assumed that Job's suffering was the result of sin, either on the part of Job or maybe his ancestors. And and Job's search for an explanation or, or vindication for his suffering then leads to, or it kind of points to, the second reason for suffering. And that is, suffering glorifies God. Suffering glorifies God. Let's, when we look at verse 15, Paul writes that, for all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound And ultimately, what the final goal is to the glory of God. Paul's ministry was leading more people to the gospel. And and God's grace was spreading. And ultimately, it was for the glory of God. Now, Keller defines the glory of God as, quote, the combined magnitude of all God's attributes and qualities put together, end quote. So regarding suffering, you know, we've already kind of touched on God's attribute of justice. That suffering, you know, in the world is, is a result of God's just and his righteous punishment, you know, for sin. Now, another important attribute of God relative to suffering is his omnipotence. He's all-powerful. Times of suffering affliction, you know, loss, tragedy. They remind us that humanity is very often powerless you know, to prevent it, to stop, or to fix suffering. And ultimately, we can never, on our own, fix the underlying cause for suffering you know, by our own power. Right? That points to God's omnipotence. Another idea of God, another one of God's attributes that is highlighted in suffering is God's sovereignty. It helps, God's sovereignty helps us understand the situation of seemingly unjust suffering. Now, God, through his sovereignty, God knows and he controls every event, every aspect of history. So instances of suffering or loss, you know, may not be the result of a particular sin, but it may just be an expression of God's will. Now, the two best biblical examples of what we think would be unjust suffering are Job and Jesus Christ. In Job's case, you know, God allowed Job to suffer you know, as a demonstration of Job's faith. You know, throughout the book, Job pleaded with God for an audience. He wanted justification. He, you know, Job wanted an answer from God. But God does not give Job the answer that he was wanting or that he was expecting. What was God's response to Job? In chapters 38 and 39, Job, i sorry, God asks Job, you know, a series of rhetorical questions right? that basically, you know, and kind of, they basically emphasize 
God's knowledge, his power, his dominion. And ultimately, Job is never told why he suffered the way he did. And this is kind of another point and a reminder about suffering, that we may not know or we may never know God's reason or God's purpose for suffering in our lives. So that's Job's situation, right? And the idea of kind of what we would think of as seemingly unjust suffering, right? It was really because of God's will. It's God's plan. The second example is very, I mean, very straightforward. We know the story of Jesus Christ, the sinless, holy son of God who was experiencing eternal fellowship and unity with God, and he gave that up. He willingly and submissively came to earth in the form of incarnate man. He suffered. He bled. He died a horribly painful death through crucifixion. And John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, those classic verses remind us that God gave his son and sent Jesus Christ to save the world through him. And in both cases, you know, God is ultimately glorified through those two individuals suffering. Let's pick up the story of Joni again. Sorry, Johnny. <laughs> Johnny. So in 1970, Johnny's five-year-old niece, Kelly, died of a brain tumor. For the last year of Kelly's life, she was in constant pain. Linda, that's Kelly's mom and, and Johnny's sister, you know, suffered as well. You can imagine, you know, seeing a, a five-year-old child going through that. But compounding that suffering, Linda, Linda's husband, okay, Linda is Johnny's sister, Linda's husband actually left her and divorced her soon after Kelly's diagnosis. And through Linda's and Kelly's, you know, situation, Johnny learned that there was nothing but unhappy frustration trying to second-guess God. To the question, why God? Johnny found that the answer is, quote, there was no reason apart from the overall purpose of God, end quote. So those are the two reasons for suffering. But suffer, there is a purpose for suffering. Suffering points to God's punishment for sin, but also points to the redemption that is to come. And suffering glorifies God. It points to his sovereignty, his power, his majesty. Let's look at the responses to suffering. That's in, it's kind of mixed in the, the next few verses, but it's in verses 16 and 18 that I'm going to be drawing from. But let's uh, look at, let me, I'll just go ahead and read verses 16 through 18. Paul writes, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So the first response that we as believers should have in times of suffering is to persevere in the heart. Persevere in the heart. 
Or you can phrase that kind of on the negative. Basically, do not lose hope. We see that in verse 16. Paul starts verse 16 with a therefore. So what he's building on is he's building, this, the therefore is pointing to a logical argument. And he's building on chapter 3 and the preceding parts of chapter 4, where he describes the new covenant in the Spirit, the transformation into glory that is to come, and the future resurrection of the believer with Christ. He's right, he describes that all in chapters 3 and, and the earlier parts of chapter 4. And so he writes, in view of this, in view of that future hope, his, he and his readers should not lose heart. In verse 16, do not lose heart. Now, the Greek word for losing heart has the sense of becoming discouraged, hopeless, you know, losing spirit, or giving up. Right? And Paul uses that same phrase or that same word in chapter 4, verse 1. Just a little bit earlier, he says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. So you can see that theme is kind of built into chapter 4. Now, commentaries differ about whether this idea of losing heart or not losing heart in verse 16 either refers to the idea of boldness in, in facing trouble, like in general, or is it kind of Paul's boldness in preaching the gospel despite affliction and resistance. So there's, there's a little kind of disagreement, so we can't be too dogmatic about it. But the general idea is the same or is similar, that in times of suffering, in times of affliction, we should not get to the point of feeling hopeless or feeling like we, we need to give up or we have to give up. Now, there's two sub-points. I don't have it on the slide, but there's two sub-points related to the response of not losing hope. And the first is about grief, sorrow, or any other negative emotions that might arise during times of suffering or loss. Sometimes it seems like Christians try to avoid or kind of look down on negative emotions, you know, such as sadness or grief. But those emotions are given to us by God for our expression. Okay? And, and believers are probably very well-intentioned when they try to comfort a fellow believer, you know, with Romans 8.28. You know, when the other person's going through struggles or turmoil, they say, oh, you know, God will work everything out, you know, for, for your good. But sometimes that comes across as being kind of sterile or mechanical, you know, without empathy, or without sympathy, or, or we try to, you know, not allow the other person to express their, their sorrow, their grief, you know, those negative emotions. Sadness, grief, mourning, those are not unbiblical. The shortest verse in the Bible, John 11, verse 35, tells us that Jesus wept. You know, in mourning after learning, after the, learning about the death of Lazarus. Okay. It's okay to feel sadness, sorrow, grief, maybe anguish or distress during times of suffering or loss. But we should never get to the point of bitterness, despair, doubt, 
you know, hopelessness. So that's what it means. So that's the first subpoint of persevering in the heart. The second subpoint kind of builds off of this. It's like persevering in the heart. Well, how do we avoid losing heart or becoming hopeless? You know, what is the source of our strength? What is the source of comfort in times of suffering and struggles? And Paul gives us the answer. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians just chapter 1, just a few, maybe one or two pages over. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. One of the kind of the classic verses. Again, kind of showing that 2 Corinthians, the, the theme of suffering and comfort. The 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Verse 5, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So in verses, starting in verse 3, Paul praises God, or 3 and 4 actually, Paul praises God for being the father of mercies, the God of all comfort. The word mercies in verse 3 it has the meaning or it has the sense of compassion, a deep awareness of or, or sympathy for another person's suffering. That's what that mercy there means in verse 3. You know, God is keenly aware of our sufferings and our troubles. He is not aloof. He's not ignorant. Furthermore, God is the source of all and every form of comfort. We see that in verse 4. Verse 4 tells us that God comforts us in all, all our affliction. Not just some. Not just all. Anytime we're going through affliction, struggles, distress, He's there to comfort us. God's comfort strengthens and sustains us. But it does not mean that we're going to be completely free from pain and suffering. Being a Christian does not mean a nice, peaceful, happy life of no suffering, no pain. The participle there in verse 4 says, who comforts us. The participle, it's a present active verb. God's comfort is continuous without interruption. It's not just kind of here and there. It's not a one-time thing. It's constant throughout our life, throughout all our afflictions. Now, verse 5 tells us that God's comfort is found in and abundant in Christ and Christ's suffering and his ministry. So God, through Christ, is the ultimate source of our comfort and strength in times of trouble and suffering. Now, God also uses fellow believers as a means to comfort us. Now, if in verses 3 and 4, we see the word all kind of repeated twice. Okay? And, that, and that word all, it's, even though it's kind of short, but it actually has the same Greek root word as the word any in verse 4, 
We said that who are in any affliction. So that word any can also be translated as all or every affliction. Right? So that we, we will be able to comfort, this is verse 4, we will be able to comfort those who are in every affliction or all affliction. So, so in all or every affliction, fellow believers are a conduit for God's comfort. God comforts us through Christ, so that way we can comfort others. And that's the second sub-point of how do we persevere in the heart? Where do we get that strength? Where do we get that perseverance? What is the second response to suffering? And that's to prioritize the spiritual. Let's turn back to chapter 4. And we're going to look at verse 16. Paul writes in the second part of verse 16, he says, But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So we see that priority, the prioritizing and valuing spiritual matters and strength rather than focusing on the physical issues, you know, the outer man. I just read verse 16 where he's contrasting the decaying of the outer man and the renewing of the inner man. Let's look at verse, verse, yeah, verse 18, actually. Let's skip ahead a little bit. And he says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Okay. So he's highlighting that we should be focused on or prioritizing things that are not seen, the spiritual. So believers are to respond to times of suffering with a heavenly perspective, with spiritual strength. And this, one of the meanings of this, or one of the key points of this, is to have the correct understanding or biblical perspective of suffering in our own earthly lives. Verse 16 Paul reminds us that our physical bodies are decaying. You know, unfortunately, all of us are aging, you know, one day at a time. Nobody's getting younger. Nobody's, at a certain point, yeah, some bodies can get stronger, but over the grand scheme, the bodies will weaken. And verse 17, Paul describes the earthly suffering as being momentary, being light. We're going to come back to that in just a little bit. And he says, verse 18, Things that which are seen, you know, the physical, those are temporal. Those are temporary. They're not lasting. Now, Paul, I'm sorry, Peter conveys the similar idea in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, and also chapter 5, verse 10. Peter tells his audience that their, their distress, their various trials are only for a little while, a short period of time. So how do we develop an, a heavenly perspective? How do we prioritize the spiritual in face of our earthly suffering? And I think there's several forms, or it comes in several forms, or kind of two main, uh, probably four. I'll start with the first two. The first is trusting God. Trusting God. We need to trust God to work things out according to His goodness, His sovereign plan. Even if his plan means more suffering or maybe an unexpected turn of events, you know, or not knowing why we're suffering in the first place. 
or as the, as the case was for jo- Job. And this is the promise. That's the implication of Romans 8.28. A similar idea is, as Keller phrases it, treating God as God. Treating God as God. And it kind of, I think it kind of, it's a kind of a, goes hand in hand or kind of is related or parallels the idea of just trusting God. Now, sometimes believers treat God as an accomplice. When we pray to God, you know, we say, you know, dear God, you know, I'm going through this, you know, trouble, this, you know, this, you know, this period of trial, you know, would you please fix it this way? Or would you please, you know, allow this to work out this way? Right? So we pray or people will pray to, for God to solve or fix the situation according to how we want it to turn out. Right? But treating God as the omnipotent, the omniscient God just means submitting ourselves to him. Just saying, you know, God, however you work it out, just work it out. And that's what, that was Job's response in chapter 42. After God essentially confronts Job, right? Job says that, Job says, no one can thwart God's plan, his claims, you know, retract his de- almost demand for vindication, and all Job can do is, is repent. So trusting God, treating God as God. So that's how we can prioritize the spiritual, or that's what that heavenly perspective looks like. That's the first thing. The second thing is meditating on Christ and his ministry. By focusing our minds and our hearts on why and how Christ suffered, we grow in appreciation for the suffering and the punishment that he spared us from. Believers also partake in Christ's suffering and his glory. Paul writes in Romans 8, 17, that if we suffer with Christ, then we will also be glorified with him. And then Peter writes similar in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. Peter writes, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. We partake, we suffer, we suffer with Christ, or we, we share in Christ's suffering because Christ spared us from much worse suffering. So those are the two. The last two are kind of a little bit more on the practical side. You know, so prioritizing the spiritual in the face of suffering, kind of on a little bit more on the practical kind of um, level, includes weeping and expressing our pain. Weeping and expressing our pain. There are times when we're going through suffering, through pain, trials. And we need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be honest with fellow believers. And especially honest with God. That we are suffering. That we are under distress. And this is the first required step to open ourselves to receive God's comfort. Being honest with ourselves requires a a very critical self-examination. You know, like I said, not every instance of suffering is the result of sin. But there are times that God will use trials and tribulation and suffering 
as a result of sin or to point out sin or to highlight sin. So the believer needs to be very, I guess, critical or kind of self-examining to see, is there any unrepentant sin that has brought about or that has led to that suffering? But it's also, you know, expressing our pain, weeping, kind of being honest with ourselves, with fellow believers that we are suffering and that we need that comfort. So that's the first, or I guess that's the third, depending on how you're counting. Uh, The fourth, praying and spending time in Scripture. How do we prioritize the spiritual in the face of suffering? Praying and spending time in Scripture. Through prayer, through spending time, you know, reading, studying Scripture, those are the two main ways that we can draw closer to God, that we can draw closer to His love through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that we can begin to more fully understand and grasp and appreciate the biblical theology of sin, of God's righteousness, of suffering, and of the redemption to come. So praying and spending time in Scripture. Okay, let's continue Johnny's story a little bit more. So gradually, over time, Johnny learned how to draw, how to actually sketch and paint by holding the pencil or the pen or the paintbrush in her mouth and she was using her head. And she actually drew sketch and drew actually quite detailed pictures. I actually don't, I, I should have put a picture, but. Um, and so she would actually go out and do public demonstrations of her, like, of her art, you know, public displays or actually her kind of drawing. Um, and during those presentations, she would share about her accident and how God was working in her life. Even though God did not heal her physically, but God was fixing her kind of spiritually and emotionally. And she would sign her art with her name, and underneath her name, she would actually put, she would sign it PTL, praise the Lord, as a way of a witness to God working in her life. And in her autobiography, she wrote, and this is where it's kind of small, so you guys had to come up. She said, we aren't always responsible for the circumstances in which we find ourselves. However, we are responsible for the way we respond to them. We can give up in depression and suicidal despair, or we can look to a sovereign God who has everything under control, who can use the experiences for our ultimate good by transforming us to the image of Christ. And she quotes 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And this leads us to the final R, the results of suffering. The results of suffering. In verses 16 through 18, Paul describes two results or two outcomes of suffering in our lives. Now, there's a very close relationship, almost kind of an overlap between the responses to suffering that we just kind of went over and the results of suffering. And I've, I've tried to limit the, the preceding responses to suffering to like kind of how we as humans, you know, as, or as you know, people, you know, would think or act 
you know, during times of suffering, during times of turmoil or distress. And, and then these results are more focused on the changes, you know, in the believer or the consequences or the effects of suffering. That's kind of outside of our kind of control. So the first result of suffering is present spiritual renewal. Present spiritual renewal. And we'll look at verse 16 again. Paul writes, he said, But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. See, again, he's contrasting the decaying of our outer man, our physical bodies. And that's contrasted with the renewing of the inner man. The inner man is the spiritual part of our being. You know, for those who have received God's grace and regeneration through the Holy Spirit, the inner man is the new self. It's the new self that Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, and Colossians 3.10. Now, this renewal of the inner man, it's an active process. It's a continuous process that's occurring on a daily basis. It's not a single act. It's not a single instance in time. And that renewal of the Spirit is ever-increasing. In our present earthly lives, we will never be fully or perfectly renewed in our spirits. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. Actually, let me, let me read that. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. Right? Paul writes that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. That God is working through the Holy Spirit to strengthen our inner man, to strengthen our spirits. It's not the strengthening or this present spiritual renewal. It's not something that we can accomplish on our own. We can't do it. It's God working through the Holy Spirit to regenerate the inner man, to regenerate the spirit, and to provide that new self. So spiritual renewal in our present earthly lives is found in five things. I just had to look at my list. There's five things. Or it's found in or it leads to. Okay, so spiritual renewal includes, it's found in or it leads to, increasing trust obedience, and submission to God's will. Spiritual renewal helps us appreciate God's plan for our lives and helps us understand that suffering is, comes about or suffering is present because of the fall of man and that suffering is God's ultimate plan you know, for redemption in our sinful lives. So it's understanding or it's building that trust, that obedience and submission to God's will. That's part of the present spiritual renewal. The second aspect is being better able to endure our earthly sufferings and not fall into the trap of despair and despondency. Spiritual renewal gives us that heavenly perspective of Christ's suffering for us and that we have a future glorification with Christ. So because of that heavenly perspective, because of that spiritual renewal, we're better able to endure our earthly suffering. 
the third thing. Our present spiritual renewal leads to being more self-attuned for any possible unrepentant sin that could be the cause of our suffering and trials. Like I've mentioned a few times, you know, not every instance of suffering or affliction is due to sin, but some may be. There are times where it is, it's God's punishment or it's God's way of kind of a wake-up call to us. So spiritual renewal helps us examine and judge, our, judge ourselves rightly in case there is any unrepentant sin. The fourth, as Keller phrases it, is reordering our loves. Reordering our loves. Suffering should direct us to Christ and to God. Spiritual renewal or times of suffering can reveal items or areas of our life that have taken over or have become more of a priority to us than God and than Christ. It kind of brings our lives, our spiritual lives, and our earthly lives into focus. And the fifth, spiritual renewal includes sharing God's comfort with others. Spiritual renewal makes us more aware of the sufferings of others when we're going through sufferings ourselves. And we should then comfort those with the comfort that we receive from God in our afflictions. So present spiritual renewal, that's a result of suffering. The second result of suffering is future eternal glory. Future, future eternal glory. And we see that in 2 Corinthians verses 17 and eight, chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Paul writes, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, Far beyond all comparison. He continues in verse 18. While we look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So in verse 17, the idea of momentary. It's the idea of a, a fleetingness. It's only lasting for a brief period of time. You know, there are times where suffering seems to go on, you know, and on and on, days, weeks, months, years perhaps. But in light of eternity, you know, our lives are just fleeting and the suffering is momentary. And Paul writes that this affliction in our lives is light. And it, when you think of light, it's, yes, it's weightless. It's insignificant. It's small. So our earthly afflictions and our sufferings are trivial compared to the weight of future eternal glory. The word weight there in verse 17, it has the idea of importance, significance. It, it's something that bears heavily on. Right? So the idea of weight, it's important. And so this, the future glory has no comparison, as Paul writes in verse 17. And then Paul also writes of this kind of relative comparison between our present suffering and our future glory in Romans 8, verse 18. Romans 8, 18. 
It says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the, with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The future glory of believers brings our salvation to completion, to finality, to perfection. That future glory, in that future glory, believers will receive a renewed and resurrected body in both physical form and in spirit. It's in that future glory that believers will, obta- will attain that perfect Christ-likeness. And also, in that future glory, believers will experience that perfect communion and fellowship with God where we can worship Him, we can praise Him, we can enjoy His majesty and His presence. That's the future glory, the eternal glory. Now, just as importantly, in verse 17, verse 17 indicates a cause and effect relationship that our present suffering is producing for us. It's leading to that eternal weight of glory. Similarly, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, that's 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, Peter tells his readers that they have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of their faith may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Now, this does not mean that we should deliberately seek out affliction or trials or suffering or that we should just kind of passively allow suffering to continue you know, so in order that we would be rewarded with, you know, future glory. Um, you know, there are some people that kind of fall into that trap of, you know, physical suffering, you know, kind of physical beating, or kind of, um, you know, restricting what they allow, kind of, almost kind of like a, oh, I just blanked on the word, and I don't have it in my notes, um, <laughs> where they, they, they deprive themselves of, you know, you know, maybe some, you know, kind of earthly, quote-unquote, pleasures, No, that's not what this means. And also, like I mentioned before, or I haven't, but not all and not every instance of suffering, you know, will result in that future eternal glory. Because there are times when suffering is actually a punishment for sin, right? It's to call us out, to focus us, to to kind of a wake-up call. So, I mean, like when we come down with, a really bad flu, or maybe COVID, or going through some physical illness, that does not necessarily, you know, lead to that future eternal glory. The main areas of suffering that do lead to that future eternal glory are times when we're suffering for Christ, maybe because, you know, because we're evangelizing, because of our faith, that we've remained steadfast in our faith, and we're we're facing kind of persecution, kind of resistance. That does. Or suffering that honors Christ. Or suffering, or periods of time when we're suffering with the proper Christ-centered spirit. Those are the times of suffering that contribute or that produce that future eternal glory. Now, Let's pick up Johnny's story again. Now, Johnny went on to found um, an evangelistic outreach ministry. 
And the ministries or the organization's aim is to share the gospel and to provide practical assistance to peoples worldwide with disabilities, either physical disabilities, developmental, or intellectual disabilities. And I'm going to close with a quote from Johnny. She was kind of reflecting on kind of her quadriplegia, her condition, and um, a little bit before this paragraph, she was talking about her, when she was on her wedding day and how she needed help to put on the wedding gown. And she had seen herself in the mirror. And she writes, For although my suffering has often felt overwhelming as when I saw myself in that mirror, so she was referring to she saw herself um, on her wedding day, it's been God's choicest tool in making me holy. My affliction keeps purging sin and selfishness out of my heart, honing me to be the perfect picture picture-perfect bride. Heaven is the holy habitation where I'll be presented to Jesus, spotless and blameless. And my suffering is helping with that. Let's close in prayer. Dear great God of heaven, we praise you, we thank you, because you are a sovereign God. You are a just a righteous God, but you are also a merciful God who provided your son, Jesus Christ, to be a suffering servant who suffered, who bled, who died, so that we can partake in that suffering or we can be spared eternal suffering and that then we can partake in the glory that which you have given your son you have placed your son above all other names. And we just thank you for that. We just thank you that in times of suffering, you have given us your Holy Spirit. You have given us your son. You have given us your word. And you have given us fellow believers you know, to comfort us in times of suffering. We ask that you be with each and every one of us as we go about our daily lives, as we encounter trials, tribulations, times of distress, times of loss and tragedy, may we always look to you, look to your son, Jesus Christ, to find comfort. We ask that you be with us each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.